Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trainway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trainway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. The Anson County Fiber Arts Festival is the place to discover the wonderful world of cotton and hemp fibers and more. You'll find fibers from plant and animal, plus vendors, workshops, a used equipment sale, the fiber shed, and activities for the family. Plus, join the local historical society on a journey of the town's deep roots as a textile center. Visit the fair September 22nd and 23rd at their inaugural event in historic Uptown Wadesboro, North Carolina. For more information, visit AnsonCountyFiberArtsFestival.com. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder Ann Marrow. Kristen Nicholas is a celebrated knitwear designer and author, but mostly she's an artist and a farmer. She's lived on a farm in western Massachusetts for decades, tending a flock of sheep, creating colorful textiles, and painting. I talked to Kristen just before the launch of Farm and Fiber Knits, Longthread Media's new celebration of yarn makers, designers, and knitters in pursuit of the authentic handmade life. There could hardly be a more perfect guest to kick off the project. Kristen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, well, thanks for asking me. So one of the things I've noticed is that a sense of place is really important in your work. Can you tell me a little bit about your place, about where you live and how you've how you've shaped it? Uh, yeah, sure. We bought this house in 1998 when I was pregnant with our daughter. And we had lived in Eastern Mass, but my husband grew up one and a half miles by the crow flies, five miles by the road from this house. And it came up for sale. And we had thought about moving, just changing our lives a little bit. And my mother-in-law had actually wanted to buy this house after her husband passed away and the kids wouldn't let her because they wanted to be in their family house. So anyway, my husband said, we got to buy it. And I said, well, can I look at it? (laughs) (laughs) So we came the next day and we drove up and I said, okay, I don't need to go in. We can buy it. (laughs) Because the thing is, it's at the end of a dirt road. It's a beautiful spot. We were there in February in a snowstorm and it looked like a quintessential cape, you know, old fashioned cape. It actually is built in 1751, supposedly. No records, you know, back then, but that's that's what they say. And it was the spot. It's like we look out onto this. It's a hill, a mountain, whatever you want to call it. And on the other side is the farm that Mark grew up on. And we still own part of that land over there. So for us, you know, it was like perfect spot. And I figured, you know, I'm an artist. No matter what's inside the building, I can make it happen. So and make it our house. So obviously you're an artist. And yet you also have a background in agriculture. Like you studied that, right? So I went to school for textiles and clothing back in the days when it was human resources, human ecology. And 
I went to University of Delaware and I went on an exchange program to Oregon State. And, you know, Oregon State is way different than Delaware. I actually grew up in New Jersey. So uh, when I got out there, you know, it was wide open spaces. And I actually met my husband and he grew up on a dairy farm. So he was going to school out there for animal science. And so he took me to the sheep barns because he had just taken this class. My thing was fiber because I was really interested in spinning and wool. And his thing was animals. So we bought four sheep, four Romney sheep in 1980. I think it was 1981, maybe. And my, as my mother says, well, some people get an engagement ring. Kristen gets four <laughs> sheep. <laughs> Well, it is a it is a lifetime commitment. <laughs> uh, it totally is, totally is. So we had these four Romney sheep, and then we had to find a ram, and so we we got this ram, and then we had seven sheep. First year, we only had two babies. Right, it wasn't so successful <laughs> the breeding, and then um, this is a long time to have sheep. If you want to, you know, sometimes I think, oh my god, how have we had sheep for forty something years? This is crazy. But that's how long we've had sheep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over the years, our flock has changed. You know, the breeds have changed. The reason we grow them has changed. And, you know, what we do with them. So, but they're they're always there in our lives. You mentioned to me the other day that your first publication was actually in Spinoff Magazine, where you were the cover model. I was. I was. So I, boy, I, I mean, I've got a long history and fiber. I went to grad school at Colorado State and I got out and, you know, it was the very early 80s. It was horrible economy. You couldn't find jobs. And there was a store in Princeton, New Jersey called Landau's. And uh, Robert Landau, I met him by just going into the store and they imported a lot of Icelandic sweaters, you know, the yoke sweaters classic. And that was super popular then. And so I told him what I did, and he he said, would you be interested in making wool in our window? Okay. So I didn't have a job. I lived about an hour from Princeton. Oh, my gosh. And I drove from my mom and dad's house to Princeton every day of the week, except for, I think, Sundays. And... I did spinning and weaving in the window of Landau's store. And so, you know, it was like I was sitting there and people were coming and watching me and I didn't get paid for it. You know, it was one of those crazy things you do when you're young. It's like, OK, no pay. That's all right. You know, I, I didn't get a job out of it or anything, but it was a really cool experience. And I wrote an article for Spinoff about the experience. Also, I had done this, my thesis was called Wool Production from Small Flocks of Sheep. And I think I submitted that idea. And then when they heard, I think it was Linda Ligon, heard about me sitting in the window, she said, would you do a article about it? So I had two articles and then, you know, we had to have some pictures. So my husband, I gave him my camera. He's a horrible photographer. And <laughs> And he took a picture of me holding a lamb and 
our little dog, she was a Sheltie cross called Haida, named after the Northwest Coast Indians because I'm really into all that, you know, kind of art. And Linda liked it so much that she had this pen and ink done. It was like one of those spotted kind of things, you know, where they put all the spots together to make a picture. And it was on the cover. And I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Still have it. I have it in our little lamb shack where we sell our meat. Mm-hmm. And it's on the wall in there. So it's interesting that you were spinning and weaving since you're so known now as a knitter. I, I'm not sure people know that you're also a spinner and weaver. Oh, well, that was my initial thing. So I went to school for fiber art. So, you know, you do everything. You do boutique, you do weaving. Um, when I was out in Oregon, I had this fantastic professor named Pat Sparks. I don't oh, yes. Know, Felter. You know her? Yeah, Felter. Yes. Right. But she was my weaving teacher. And that school was great because it had both in the textile, in the home economics school, and in the art school, there was weaving in both places. So I took, I was able to take weaving with two different professors. And um, my friend Janice found out there was a spinning class off campus. And she said, do you want to go with me? And I said, sure. So we went to, we called it Spinning with Thelma. I cannot remember Thelma's last name. And that's where I learned to spin. And then I had all this yarn, uh, you know, a lot of yarn. And um, <laughs> As one does. <laughs> yeah. And Pat told me that I should buy a book called Knitting Without Tears, and I'll figure out how to make a sweater. And so I had already known how to knit, but I didn't know about Elizabeth Zimmerman and her great, you know, just chatty way. And it really resonated with me. And that's when I started, you know, basically designing. Oh, and then I bought a Montrico for two fifty. I remember, $2.50. It was a stitch dictionary. I still have the thing, cover falling off. And um, I was able to design a sweater. And I took the train home from Oregon through Canada, and I knit the whole way. And I had a sweater by the time I got back, you know, because I was going from West Coast to East Coast. So Yeah. To your very first sweater. My first hand spun. I had knit sweaters before. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I got into knitting because I was doing a lot of commuting, going to college, you know, on trains and stuff. And I wanted something to do that wasn't school. And so I had learned to knit when I was a kid, but never really took up on it. I actually crocheted a lot. Like my grandmother had more time than my mom. And Mm -hmm. so she was a big crocheter. So I did a a lot of that, uh, ponchos and, you know, all kinds of stuff. You're actually the the third in the trifecta of incredible fiber artists who wrote Kids Knit, Kids Weave, Kids Embroider. Yeah. So we we spoke with Melanie Fallick and we spoke with mm-hmm. Sarah Sweat. Mm-hmm. And you did Kids Embroider and you also did the illustrations for Kids Knitting. Is that right? Yep. I met Melanie through a book called Knitting in America. Yes, she, of course. I was one of, my, one of the chapters and we hit it off. And then she decided to write Kids Knitting. And she knew that I knew how to paint and because she had stayed at my house and she knew she saw my pottery because I was doing a lot of ceramics. And she said, would you illustrate kids knitting for me? I was like, I don't know if I can do that. You know, (laughs) I've never done that. I had a job. I was full time creative director at a yarn company. But I said, yeah, sure. So uh, I figured all out all the illustrations and then she started at Stuart Tabori and Chang. She asked me if I would write one of these kids series books that she was doing. And it was the first one called Kids Embroidery. 
and I've only seen the pictures of your house, but it okay. would be impossible to go inside your house and not know that you're a visual artist. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Yep, yep. There's not a blank wall in the place, really. <laughs> Is that something, do you feel like, okay, I've, I've, I've done it now, I'm all finished, or do you go back and revisit it sometimes? I worked really hard on this house because mm-hmm. not one part is untouched from when we moved in. And I did it when my daughter was really little. And I ended up, I guess I had a, I had a book that was coming out and I wanted to tie uh, publicity with the house, with the book, thinking, okay, this will sell books. So I wrote some press releases and I got, out of those press releases, I got... <laughs> Old-fashioned press release in the mail. Absolutely. And so I got, I was in the Boston Globe. That was my first one. And then, oh, I was in um, the Boston Herald. That was way back. And then I had two people, two magazines, two editors. One was Victoria Magazine, Mm -hmm. which was big back in the um, early 2000s. And the other was Country Home Magazine. And they both approached me. And I didn't know anything about magazine business, but, you know, you cannot be featured in both magazines. One has to have you and the, you oh. can't, your house can't be anyplace else. So, um, you know, it came down to which one has got the better circulation for my demographic. And I picked Victoria. So the Victoria magazine came and they did a photo shoot at the house. So I was like, you know, panicking. The whole house was finished by then. But funny story, these things are a year in advance. Mm-hmm. So they take all the pictures. I'm waiting, waiting. The magazine goes out of business. Oh, no. So all this work I had done and, you know, I was all psyched getting, you know, publicity for my book and everything, gone. So mm-hmm. I went with my uh, head between my legs or whatever, you know, tail behind, whatever they call that term. I went back to country home and I said, well, Victoria went out of business. Do you want my house? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and And... <laughs> It happened to be that Carol Sheehan lived in Ashfield, which is about 35, 40 minutes from here. And she said, oh, yeah, no problem. We'll do your house. So we did the house again. <laughs> and, and then it did come out. That was in 2004. Mm-hmm. So since then, yeah, I've done stuff. But I tend to do it, decorate it, and then it pretty much stays. Yeah. You know, it's full. It's really cool. I would have to, to redecorate. I'd have to get rid of a lot of stuff and start over again. And there's kind of a link between your painting on the wall. Around. But then you, you have a lot of beautiful handmade, hand-knitted and hand-embroidered decorations. So they kind of go together. Yeah. Yeah. So back when I was in school in Oregon, there was this little store. The lady's name was Charlotte. Somebody, Some listener is going to know. Charlotte's last name. And she had spinning fibers and she had handmade things. And she had stuff from all over the world, like textiles. And there was this piece of embroidered, chain stitch embroidered. It was a big, long panel, about 10 inches tall and, I don't know, 12 feet long. And it was right when there was a war going to happen in Afghanistan. It was Afghani embroidery. I was like, oh, my God, I have to buy this thing. I didn't have the money, but mm-hmm. I'm never going to be able to get this stuff again because it's all going to be blown up, you know, and the tech, the whole culture will be gone. So I bought it. And that was like my first one of my first pieces. I'd also collected little molas and different 
um, pieces of textiles, handmade textiles from whenever I would see them and could afford them. And um, so I still do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't stop. You know, that's a long time <laughs> ago. But if I see a beautiful piece of ethnic embroidery or handwoven, you know, I try to find the money and mm-hmm. pick it up and I got a closet full. <laughs> Each of those things kind of has a distinctive style and your work also has a really distinctive style. And so you have this juxtaposition of, you know, cultural embroidery and then very Kristen Nicholas pillows and textiles and mm-hmm. things like that that mm-hmm. you've made. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the way the pillows came up, a lot of, you know, home deck stuff. In my former job, I was the creative director and I was in charge of the pattern programs for knitting. And I guess I should say I worked for Classic Elite Yarns. Mm-hmm. And I started in 84. And by the time the early 90s, I think 92 it was, I was getting bored of sweaters. You know, <laughs> sweater after sweater after sweater, designing them, writing the patterns, figuring them all out. And I wanted to do something fun. So I thought, uh, I went on a business trip and I can remember thinking, okay, I need to bring something I can knit in the round and I got to do this fast because I have nothing planned and it's for me. Mm-hmm. So I picked up two colors of yarn. I thought, oh, I love needlepoint pillows, mm-hmm. but didn't really like all that repetitive stitching. So I thought, what if I do a, fair, a piece of fair isle mm-hmm. and then embroider colors on top of it later so that it looks like needlepoint, but it's knitted. And so I started it, you know, did it in the round on the plane and the whole time working on the darn thing. Brought it back home. It had a steak, so I cut the steak and flattened it out. And you're going to die, Anne, but here we go. Oh, my gosh. That is beautiful. It looks like a like a killum, like one of those rugs, one of those flat woven rugs. Yeah. It's gorgeous. So this this is the first one that mm-hmm. I made. And... I added all the duplicate stitch and other colors on top of it. And then I decided, oh, are people nuts enough in the knitting world to start doing this kind of ethnic inspired knitting? So I decided I would knit four projects up. And the idea was to get people to go beyond their their normal, follow the pattern exactly kind of thing. And so I made gloves, socks. A Peruvian chula, and one more thing. It wasn't the pillow, I don't think. No, it wasn't the pillow. That came later, the patterns. And we packaged them up. They were assorted colors, six colors, and this little cute little booklet that was black and white printed with a postcard of the project. And they were in a little um, handmade basket. I bought them, mm-hmm. you know, wholesale. Put right. the yarn in and shrink wrapped them like the stuff they wrap up watermelons in right bought a shrink yeah. wrapper and <laughs> anyway everything was assorted so mm-hmm. no kit was really the same and these poor ladies in the back in the mill were making you know making these things up and i'd go back and check and say oh no that color range doesn't work and you know anyway we shipped them and they they took off mm-hmm. people loved it they were adventuresome knitting you know that's what they were entitled and so then that whole project range went on for four years. So I did, actually, I did 17 projects over the years that 
were these adventuresome projects, you know, mittens, hats, lots of hats. And, you know, I heard from people. I, I remember how I got a maid to have all these samples. I went to a knitting guild meeting to do a presentation one night. And I had this, I said, okay, I'll do it for you. And I, I thought, okay, I'm going to see if I can in, uh, get these ladies to help me knit. <laughs> so at the end of the of the meeting, I said, would anybody like to volunteer to knit for me? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I had a bunch of takers. So I shipped them all yarn with these sort of brief directions with all these charts. And I said, go, you know, go for it. See what, see what you can come up with. And then I gave them a deadline before the photo shoot. And they uh, sent me back these, you know, their own works of art. Mm-hmm. So they got it what I wanted them to do. And then I had, you know, I made stuff. And anyway, we photographed like in, in each photograph, um, there would be, you know, sometimes 20 projects. Wow. So I kind of became known for those kind of projects. And I guess where this all started is like the color ranges of ethnic textiles and the Mm -hmm. whole, uh, naivete of textiles, you know, it doesn't have to be you know, super sophisticated. It just, that's my style is not really super sophisticated. Mm-hmm. It's folk art, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's things that are entrenched in people's lives and cultures and everything. And I've taken, you know, that inspiration from all over the world and sort of made it into my own world also. That really goes against this sort of received wisdom, the the common knowledge that, oh, knitters only want to make the thing in the picture. They have to have the exact yarn. And if they can't get that exact yarn, they won't knit it. But yep. that's not at all what you did. No, no. So I think because I had come from knitting from the beginning, from reading Elizabeth Zimmerman's book, mm-hmm. and I actually corresponded. I have all my letters from Elizabeth oh, wow. saved, signed books and everything. Mm-hmm probably end up in a dumpster somewhere. You know, that was my start. And so it was always sort of um, before DIY was DIY. You know, I like to take things from the start and do the whole thing myself. Mm -hmm. And when I went into the yarn business, I couldn't believe that they were going to knit that sweater that was shown in the picture in the exact same color. That Mm -hmm. was dumbfounding to me. It was like, Pick your own color, do your own thing. And um, I had to go with it because that's what people wanted. That's what the stores wanted. We would always sell the most color, the color that was featured, that's what we would sell. Right. You know, and if we had an editorial that hit good, like in the old Vogue knittings, we'd mm-hmm. sell thousands of pounds of this one color because everybody yeah. wanted exactly the same. That's not me. And um, I, you know, I always wanted to put my own spin on things. And I think by giving people the freedom to do that, where they are, they went into the store and looked at all these baskets full of yarn. They picked the ones that, you know, appealed to them the best and then did it themselves. And I got letters from people. I'm still friends with people that knit these, <laughs> knit these yeah. projects, you know, that it, it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. It's And it's almost like I gave them the... Um, the freedom mm-hmm. to try it on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's my story on that. So what was it like to be, you know, the creative director for a yarn company where you are 
trying to do something that will appeal to a whole lot of people when you yourself have such a strong visual sense? How did you kind of bring those together or navigate that? So the thing that I always think about is why did Classic Elite become successful? Because when Mm -hmm. I went there, there was really no knitting yarns. The colors were awful. And, you know, it was basically starting from scratch. They had been a supplier mostly to uh, hand weavers, yarn on combs. Mm-hmm. The big yarn was um, Lagrand Mohair, mm-hmm. which is sadly no longer available. So I, my job was to turn this hand weaving company into a yarn company for hand knitting because it mm-hmm. was the beginning of the big boom, 1980s. So because... Pat Chu gave me the freedom to have that creative vision once she trusted me. She didn't trust mm-hmm. me in the beginning, but then after my first line of yarn and color range was a success, she never bothered me after that. And um, I think just having that singular vision mm-hmm. gave it a look. And But I knew we had to sell, you know, mm-hmm. that that's the bottom line. You don't have a job if you don't sell. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to have a financial success. So we always, uh, I knew that you had a, the simple patterns always sold the best. But I would photograph them in really pretty bright fashion colors, like chartreuse. When we first started with chartreuse, there were no chartreuses available. And, you know, and then I put together really fun patterns. And so there would be a mix of difficult things. I love to design the difficult things. And then there would be simple things. And mm-hmm. that's how we got a success. And then I sort of went along with the success by establishing my name as a creative director. So you could kind of see the difference between this is what a whole bunch of people will like, but also what I like might be a little different than that. Because your house could not belong to anybody else. (laughs) Yeah. Other people love your house. I should say that makes it sound like, oh, your house is so weird. Other people would love your house, but it has Uh such your style and your stamp on it. And I'm I'm just curious about, you know, kind of holding those those two different aesthetics at the same time. You mean the aesthetic of things that will sell and mm-hmm. things that I love? Yeah. Well, I think that's, I would always put stuff in that, let me say, our customer, even though it was the end user, it was the store. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because right. the store is the one that's buying the yarn and they are going to bring it in and give it to the customer. Mm-hmm. So the stores began to trust me and our company as to what we were putting out there. And then they started promoting us to the customer. And, you know, our booths were always gorgeous because I, you know, I had a vision in my head, I think visually, and I would turn it, turn it into a booth. And the pattern programs, I always had a theme every year. And so there would be a whole story around all the patterns. And like one year we had going to Peru and we didn't go to Peru. And then we had beach stuff. And that's the way I thought. It was more like, um, well, you know, almost how like a fashion designer would design a line. At the same time that you're working with this whole range of yarns that have, you know, natural and synthetic and dyes from all over. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have your own flock at home. Right. Yeah. So, so you you understood more about how yarn is, uh, how wool is made. Yeah. Then like the normal creative director working at some other company. Yeah. yeah because I, I had studied wool. I had taken classes in um, 
wool production, sheep production. So, you know, I knew that whole thing. And then my husband is the one that's really into the animals. And, you know, I was really into the wool. I mean, I can remember the first time we got them sheared, how exciting that was. And, you know, I took the wool. We had Romney sheep back then, really long Mm -hmm. staple length. And I, I made my husband a sweater, hand spun, hand spun all the wool. I made him the mm-hmm. sweater. You know, I did it for myself. Then, yeah, so I knew about the wool. So it was actually because I used to design the yarn with mills, I could specify what kind of micron count I wanted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when a sample would come in, I would, because I was a spinner, I would say, needs more twist. You know, let's try the different sizes. But I could also, I knew all the terms, not all the terms I learned along the way for different sizes and different kinds of spinning, cotton spun, all the different yarn counts. And so I was able to work with the mills to make the stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, with my background, I could turn it into yarn that people want to knit with. Right. Romney is a wonderful fleece for hand spinners. It's not quite what I think of traditionally as being yarn store wool. No, no. I didn't know that when we first got into the Romneys. We knew they were dual purpose. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have sheep, you got too many, right? You got half rams, half lambs. And my husband was always, you know, we got to sell these for meat. And I was like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, over the years, I've realized that that's the only way you can mm-hmm. keep a flock going. Even if somebody has a bunch of sheep, you're always going to have babies. You're always going to have usually half rams, half ewes, mm-hmm. and you can't have that many rams. And what are you going to do? Castrate them all and keep them all around? You know, they're you ha- they have to move on. So, but the Ramis were great because they're great mothers, and for hand spitters, it's really a nice fleece, but. Now, over the years, we, you know, we bring in a different ram. We try different rams. He's always researching what will make the best carcass quality. Because right now, we are going for meat. Mm-hmm. That's our primary thing. I go to the farmer's market in Amherst every Saturday and sell our frozen lamb to customers. Yeah. Are you using the wool that you produce? Because they have to be shorn. You know, right, right. I, I assume they have to be shorn. Yeah. Yes. So we shear them once a year. Mm-hmm. We use this guy, Kevin Ford, who's famous in the world of uh, hand spinners and shearing. I would say he shears with blades. Oh, wow. Like the hand? Hand blade. Yes. Wow. And he's up in his 70s now. But we have used him since, I don't know, the early early 90s, I think. Man, the late 80s to shear our sheep. And now he'll bring some other people with him because we have too many for him to do. And so we do a combo of electric and blade shearing. A lot of times he'll bring people that are learning blade shearing. They, mm-hmm. He uses our flock to teach on. So the wool, over the years, I have gotten it processed and then tried to sell it. And that's actually the backstory to how I got my job at Classic Elite. Back in the early 80s, when I was commuted to New York City, working in the Empire State Building, oh I started gosh. a yarn company. A yarn retail company out of my parents' basements. And it was mm-hmm. called Eden Trail South because our farm is on Eden Trail. And so I had the wool processed, made into yarn, and marketed it. 
I mean, it was our wool. And then I wanted to supplement it with some other yarn. And I heard about classic elite yarn, or it was elite specialty yarns at that point. So I contacted them and I sold their two weights of mohair. So I had four yarns. I had like a bulky and a um, worsted weight wool, maybe three yarns, and then another heavier wool that was out of our wool. And then I had the mohairs and I made color cards myself. Uh, everything, man, everything. Do you remember a dot matrix printer? I don't know if Absolutely. you know what they were. Absolutely. Well, I, I published this newsletter using a dot matrix printer. I had this catalog made and I sent it out all over the place. And my big coup was I met Nancy Thomas from who worked mm-hmm. at Vogue Knitting when Vogue Knitting became started over again. And she, I it was either in the first or second Vogue Knitting. She featured my little mail order business mm-hmm. in the back of the magazine, you know, where they have like funky little things. Right. And so I picked up all these customers, you know, I had a, a Mac, I had a database, you know, all these people's <laughs> names. I sent catalogs and then I wrote a newsletter myself that I dot <laughs> printed on that dot matrix printer and pasted it all up. And I used oh Letraset for the, all the highlights, you know, for all the headings. Anyway, so I had a business. And so because I worked, uh, I had this job at the Empire State Building, but did this other thing on nights and knit on the knit on the bus and would make the patterns that I gave the patterns away in the, with the newsletter. One night I called to order yarn from Classic Elite and the woman that owned it actually picked up the phone. And that's mm. how I, the connection happened with me getting that job. Mm-hmm. So I was still doing my, our sheep business. And then I was working at the yarn company, but I realized that the wool business was probably not going to go anywhere. And I just put my strengths into my job and, you know, really made that into something because I was getting paid. I was getting paid from the other thing, but yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. So what happens to your wool that gets shorn now? Okay. So now we have gone away from wool breeds. We have Dorset Rams. We've had Border Lesters. We've had, oh man, we've had Dorpers, which are the ones that shed. Hmm. Katahdins that shed. Border Lesters, Romneys. I mean, the Romney is still my favorite and the Border Lesters, I love them. But we use a Texel Ram now and a Dorset Ram because the meat carcass is better. So yes, they do grow wool. Yes, we have it sheared every year. Sometimes we use it for compost. Most recently, the background of the story is it used to be the wool pool. Mm -hmm, Right. Where we could get rid of it all. And I mean, we have these bags are enormous. I think we have like 400 sheep right now. There's a lot of wool. It's a lot of wool. It's a lot of wool. But because we only have so much money to go into our farm and the amount of money that it makes... This is what people don't understand. It Mm -hmm. costs a fortune to spin yarn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's all these small mills and everything. And where do you put your money? That's the question for a farmer. Where are you going to put your money? Well, we're going to put it into where we think it's going to make the most money for us so that we can keep this thing going. And the wool isn't it, you know, sadly. So we have fiber shed. Yes. You know the fiber shed? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there's a Western Mass affiliate of Fibershed, mm-hmm. and we hooked up with some of the members and some of these people, they're most, they're all women, 
have been coming to our farm on shearing day. And our deal with them is if you pay for the shearing, you can have the wool mm. per animal. And so there's a really talented woman who started a yarn company uh, called Bloom. And she is buying wool from all these different farms. And she's paying to have the yarn spun. And ours is called Babe. So she uses all the lamb's wool from our sheep. She spins it and then she hand dyes it with natural dyes. So our our wool is in that one yarn. And then they're doing another interesting thing that they came and got wool from us. There's this machine that makes wool pellets that's used. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for mm-hmm. um, compost. Mm-hmm. So one of the women, Peggy Hart, came and bought a bunch of wool from us. And she is actually buying a pelleter and... So she'll be buying local wool to be used in that pelleter to make this wool compost. So, you know, it's not all unused. Mm-hmm. It's just we still have sacks and sacks of wool right. sitting around. But, you know, it's it, people are going to think I'm horrible. But I guess because I have a commercial background mm-hmm. and... You know, I know you have to make money. I mean, there's the dream of all this stuff, but how much money is there really in in sales as opposed to how much money you're going to have to put in and all the infrastructure? And at this point in my life, I'm not interested. You know, I mean, mm. I want to do what I want to do, and I'm not interested to going to yarn fairs and selling, you know, four pounds of yarn. Right. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, that, it is important to think about what you're trying to keep going. There's sort of this this organic hole that you're working on on your okay. farm. Okay. I've talked to Kate Larson a little bit. She's the editor of Spinoff, and she has okay. a border lester flock, oh, um, cool. which she's very practical about it, but she's mm-hmm. definitely breeding for fleece as well as mm-hmm. for restoring yep. okay. restoring her, her pasture. But, you know, she said when you talk about not using the wool, particularly, I think, alpaca, you know, oh, what do yeah. you do with all this alpaca wool? Uh. She said, you know, people think that farmers just don't know that, oh, those silly farmers, they they just don't realize the value of what they have. But people don't realize, even if you're just having to move it somewhere, all the costs associated with that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if you have as many sheep as we have, you know, everything costs money. Like the last time we sold to the wool pool, which was probably about 10 years ago, um, they had one in Cummington. So... We loaded up all the wool into our trailer. We had sacks and sacks, these big, giant, uh, I think they're like eight feet tall, stuffed with wool. So there's like at least 200 pounds. You know, we have one of those things where you jump into it so the wool gets smushed down into the plastic bag and all the bags have holes on it so they breathe. And we took it to the wool pool. So this is a day-long project, Mm -hmm. right? And we get there, we drop the wool off. You know, it was far to get there, far to get back. Never mind loading the stuff with a tractor on the forklift, on the forks on the tractor. Mm-hmm. And we get there, we drop it off, and then we sign a little piece of paper, and then we wait for our money. Mm-hmm. This is what really did me in. Okay. I was like, okay, forget about the wool. We got 25 cents a pound for the wool. It took us days. Never mind the sheep, what they put into it. And how many pounds? I can't remember. All I know, it, it was it was pitiful. 
And it all went to China. Mm. It went to China because there really are no mills left in the United States mm -hmm. that can process it that, you know, in large quantities. Mm -hmm. So all these, all this wool from Western Mass and Connecticut and Vermont and New York State all went to China to be spun over there. So one of the things that's making me realize is just how kind of precious and special and what a labor of love it is when you go to a farmer's market and you find somebody who's selling four, four pounds of wool or somebody exactly. like Bloom yeah. who's who's going yeah. through this process. Mm -hmm. Just what kind of devotion it takes to have a truly local yarn, a farm yarn kind of thing. Yeah, Lisa, her name is Lisa. She also has her own small, very small flock. So that's why she reached out to other sheep farmers. But people don't realize how much work goes into a skein of farm-raised yarn. I mean, mm -hmm. it is, it's crazy. And so maybe it costs $25. Well, I'm telling you, that's cheap. Mm -hmm. You know, when people now... Uh, the minimum wage in, in Massachusetts is $15 an hour now. It's a bargain. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the consumer will ever understand that. You know, the only way you understand it is blood, sweat, and tears and trying <laughs> to turn it into a business and then, you know, wanting to keep it going and seeing what works. Our sheep are not pets. You know, they're our farm product. And we do, I mean, we love our sheep. I mean, yeah. But you're going to have half boys and half girls, and you don't need that many boys. So um, you got to do something with it. And the other thing we do is a lot of pasture reclamation. So around our area, we live in rural Western Massachusetts, and there's so many dairy farms that are gone out of business. So there's these pastures that are growing up into brush forest, back to forest. And so over the years, we have grazed with using electronet fencing all over the place in our local area. We have sheep in, we live in Leiden. We have sheep in Greenfield. We have sheep in Bernardston, Leiden, Coleraine. Uh, those are the places right now. And so these flocks graze all summer long all over the place. They all split up, which means we have to move them there. Mm -hmm. We have to separate them, move them, truck them in the back of a landscape trailer at 20 at a time, if we're lucky, and to get them to their next field. And because they're miles apart from each other. And I mean, this is my husband's passion. He likes to do it. And and then we grow all the hay to feed them all. Yeah. We grow the hay and he harvests the hay, you know, all summer long. So they have something to eat in the wintertime. Yeah. So from the outside looking in, it looks like a very romantic life. You know, you see those little white sheep out in the field, all fluffy. I mean, they're beautiful. I mean, I see them every morning. I count mm -hmm. them. <laughs> but it is a ton of work. Most sane people wouldn't do it, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that sort of pragmatic approach is something that was in that. You had two articles in that spinoff yeah. magazine. One of them was about the window, and the other one was sort of okay. about your thesis. And that yes. your thesis was very practical. Yes. Well, I'm a super practical person. I mean, I have this whole artistic vision floating around in my head, but things have got to make sense financially for me. Mm -hmm. And I would never put, when I worked for the yarn company, I wouldn't put a yarn into work that was going to cause us a ton of returns. Because mm. I was the one that'd have to talk to the customer when they were upset 
Mm-hmm. And it had to be something that was going to not cause a lot of trouble. I mean, I had my failures. Some things did cause trouble, <laughs> I will admit. But, you know, we, we worked on those things. And a lot of it was had to do with dying because dying was always a snafu, commercial dying, especially when you're trying to fool around with interesting fiber combinations. Mm-hmm. So it was a challenge. So, yes, I'm, I'm pragmatic and and. That's just the way I am. I guess I was raised that way. My grandmother was very common sense. And when I think up a new product, I think, okay, how am I going to make this? How is this going to turn into a product that can be sold and be made money off of? Mm-hmm. You know, that's how I think. I'm actually going to read something from that article. Okay. Woo. And just to see what you think. <laughs> okay. It says, foreign wools have taken on an air of a status symbol to some hand spinners, but we must not overlook something as close as our own back door, the wool of the American sheep. Well, that's true. Back then, it, mm-hmm. that was really true. I remember back then, uh, there would be a lot of top coming in from Australia, New Zealand. And I can't remember if stuff came in from Great Britain. In the whole textile trade back then, you know, Italian wool right. clothing, British wool clothing. Back then, okay, that was the early 80s. There were not a lot of imports from China at that point. You know, the, the textile business, there was still a big textile business in the United States. The wool was starting to move out, just the whole processing. America is a capitalist society. Mm-hmm. And you know, the big companies just started getting bigger. And if they couldn't make money on it, they would just ditch it and find a better way to do it, you know, using overseas. And so, so much stuff started coming in from overseas, from from Asia mostly. When I worked at the yarn company, we, we would buy yarn. We had to buy yarn from overseas because they were not the producers in the United States that could still make it. They were gone, you know, mills split up, gone. Uh, especially in the wool trade. The cotton trade was still good. Mills were still spinning cotton. So now, I mean, it's pretty cool that all these small producers are spinning their wool. I mean, I think it's I think it's fantastic, but I just hope people keep supporting them. Right. Yeah. There's actually, I, I'm going to actually post this on our website or at mm-hmm. least a, a good chunk mm-hmm. of it because I think people will find it really interesting. Mm-hmm. One of the things you talk about was what is the size of a small flock? Most producers felt that fewer than 50 sheep or fewer than 100 sheep defined a small flock. Some Western producers stated that 500 sheep could be called a small flock. You said you have 400. Do you think you have a small flock? So it depends on where you live. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of sheep for New England now here. But out West, that would be a small flock. Some people think we're nuts with how many sheep we have. Now, we have like 200 ewes, which mm-hmm. means we usually get, if we get 150% land crop, we'll have 300 babies. We don't keep all those babies. I mean, we would have thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep. Right. You can't keep them all. You can't feed them all. You know, that's how agriculture works. You have babies and then you don't have babies and then you have babies again. And Yeah. So you went from having a small flock and now you have a not so small flock. <laughs> yeah, not so small flock. Yeah. Mark, my husband, he always says, oh, yeah, this is a small flock. But to me, it's big enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm yeah. the one that's always figuring out the money, you know? It's like, <laughs> yeah, big enough. <laughs> and then the, the last thing I'm just going to read, I'll post the rest of it. Okay. But sheep producing is as interesting and rewarding as hand spinning. And the people who grow sheep are a great group to get to know. Very true. Very true. Still true. Still it's so interesting. Such interesting people to 
the people that we've met through our sheep business, I can't tell you how many interesting people we've met, you know, just from all walks of life. And especially when you're selling meat, Mm -hmm. you hear all these stories of people that have grown up all over the world eating lamb Mm, and they can't find lamb in the grocery store anymore. It's not there. True. And so I've sold sold lamb to so many people for uh, celebrations, you know, Christmas, Easter. There's a lot of Muslim people around here now and they eat lamb a lot. It's a huge thing for them. Now living here, I think it's a treat for them because they can't get it in the grocery store where they came from. That was what there was, sheep and goat. But yeah, so... India as well. And India... India too. Yep. I think it's the world's most populous country at this point or close to. So Right. Probably. Goat is the most popular meat in the world. Lamb, lamb is second. Huh. Sheep is second. So that's how important sheep are around the world. It's just here in America. They aren't important, you know? People around here think we're crazy to have these sheep. They don't understand it. You know, around here, cow is king. Cattle, the dairy business, that's way more respected than sheep. The sheep people are just, they got to be off their rocker. That's us. (laughs) Do you ever wonder how an artist who grew up in New Jersey turned out to be a sheep farmer? Oh, man, I have always followed my passion, you know, ever since a little kid. I mean, I remember being a little kid learning to sew. I made frogs, sewed them on my sewing machine. They were frog bean bags, and I sold oh. them on, <laughs> sold them on the sidewalk sales. So, and I think I was twelve. <laughs> okay, that that's two different. So you've got you've got the fiber and creativity, and you also have the commercial aspect yep. right there from the beginning. And I am, you know, now what I'm doing is I'm really not doing very much knitting stuff for a commercial sale anymore. But I'm making ceramics and mm-hmm. doing this colorful pottery. That's my thing right now. So, but I, I flop around from thing to thing. Like I was just, I've done a lot of crochet recently. Um, I was on this, I'm on a YouTube channel from one big happy yarn company teaching crochet Afghans. And I'm going to be doing knitting for them coming up this fall. So, you know, I still got my hand in it, but I just don't really want to be all in at the moment. Right. No. Yeah. I'm going to be 65. That's young. Well, it, yeah, it's it's young. But as you get to be that age, you start thinking about what you want to do with the rest of your life. Right. And okay, that makes sense. What is your, you know, it's kind of corny, but what is your legacy? So just recently, I got the rights back to my last knitting book was called Color by Kristen. Mm-hmm. And it was published with Soho. And so I negotiated, well, my literary agent negotiated my rights back to it. And so I sat on my butt in my chair for three weeks mm-hmm. and I got the files back. And now you can get all those patterns on my website. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't sold very many of them yet, but I just thought, you know, they're also on Ravelry. And I thought, you know, that book was really my legacy that set it all for what I want to put out there in the world of my knitwear design. Mm-hmm. And it was a great book, really great book. But now books are nowhere. You know, unfortunately, books for knitters, they don't really exist that much as far as coming out collections and stuff. So besides those kids series, the other thing that you have in common with Sarah Sweat is that you oh, both no. have Substacks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me about your Substack. Okay. So 
You know how I talked to you about my newsletter that I used to do in the 80s? Yes. So when I went to work for Elite Specialty Yarns, Classical Yarns, I thought that we needed to have a newsletter that would be newsy and have the customers feel like they're really entwined with the company. Now, we're talking about the customers are yarn stores. But when I moved out here, Western Mass, and I started writing books, you know, I've written 12 books. I wanted to get publicity, and then I heard about these newsletters, MailChimp newsletters. So I started a MailChimp newsletter because, A, it was free, and up to so many people, it was Mm -hmm. free, your newsletter. So I started developing this mailing list. I have followers from the early 80s that are still reading. You know, I still get, will get notes from them. We've gone on from no internet to internet. And so long story short, um, I did a newsletter to promote my books, but always sort of chatty and what's going on in the farm, lots of photos. I, I wrote a blog. I think I started it in 2006. And then this newsletter, the Substack newsletter is now a combo of my blog and my newsletter. So it's newsy, but then it sometimes, you know, introduces things and... I like it because people can respond to it and send me a note. Thank you for introducing me to this artist. I mean, the the Substack is all over the place. It's about art. It's about pottery. It's about knitting, crochet. It's about the farm. The farm is always the thread. You know, that's how I introduce it. You know, and sometimes things about just life. So, and then I do a thing at the end with a whole bunch of links that I find interesting to point people all over the internet to things that I like that they also might like. And I think that's the most popular part of the newsletter. You know, that sort of referral element where if yeah. you like if you like what I do, you'll like that as well. Yeah, yeah. And I try to find things that are a little bit out there. I still think of my customer, my reader as knitters. Mm-hmm. But knitters that might want to learn a little bit more. So you mentioned that, you know, you sell lamb at the farmer's market. If people want to come and buy products from Kristen Nicholas, they can just come somewhere and meet you? Yep. I'm there, the farmer's market on the Amherst Common in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is approximately two hours from Boston and three hours from New York City. Um, (laughs) Three and a half, maybe. I'm there every Saturday from 7.30 in the morning till 1.30 in the afternoon. And they can come, say hi, uh, look at my ceramics that I have for sale and buy our farm-raised lamb and then make dinner. Wow, that's really cool. And and meet the farmer and meet the designer and the, the yeah. potter at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I used to bring my books to the farmer's market, but I found that it just was not great for lamb sales because people started talking to me about knitting and then I would miss lamb customers. So I don't bring my books anymore, but I still have a lot of books available. You know, you can get them some books are available on my website and some you have to buy used because they're out of print. Right. Is your website kristinnicholas.com? It is. K-R-I-S-T-I-N-N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S.com. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for taking time away. I know they've been very quiet, but in addition to your sheep out the window, I know you have a litter of kittens under the, yeah. the desk and a... <laughs> dog pushing at the door. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah, we got a lot of animals here. 
<laughs> okay, thank you very much for having me. Thanks to Trinway Silks and the Anson County Fiber Arts Festival for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out Farm and Fiber Knits at farmfiberknits.com. And we'd love it if you'd subscribe and review the podcast at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast program. Thanks again.